Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. I got a couple of announcements. Nothing crazy, same as last week, but very exciting. So next Sunday after church, we are going to do a member gathering. So member gatherings are open to members and attenders. Um, You don't have to be a member, but you're invited to come and join us for that. Um, And we're just going to give you a brief update on kind of what's going on in the church and where we're going as a church in the future. Um, It won't be like super long or anything. But then after kind of the informational portion of the meeting, which will happen in here, we're going to have some time for like fellowship and refreshments, um, either outside, down in the fellowship hall, wherever you guys kind of want to be. So please join us for that. And it'll be after the service, the one service that happens at 10 a.m. So remember, next week is the start of us moving into just having one service that starts at 10 a.m. rather than at 9 and 11. So don't come at 9, and if you do, we'll put you to work doing something, so just be warned. Um, And that is all the announcements I've got for you. If you are new, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Please be sure to swing by the Connect Desk and talk to the Norrises um, on your way out. They can help you get connected to the life of the church. All right, so it is Family Sunday, which means all of the kids are up here. We're giving our P-Kids volunteers a little break, a rest, just to give the ministry some time to breathe, and it's a good thing. That's not actually why we do it, though. Why we do one Sunday every quarter or so, where we have the kids all in here with us, is because they are little disciples. And Jesus rebukes people, his disciples actually, who prevent the children from coming to him. And so what that means is that Jesus values children very highly, because he understands that children represent something about what it means to actually be a disciple. And so in that moment, he's kind of teaching his disciples, hey, disciples, look at these kids. This is what it means to be a disciple, running up to him, desiring to be with him, um, receiving him with faith like a child. And so the kids actually help us understand what it means to worship and to love Jesus in that way. And so I want to challenge you all, as I, and I realize that this is indeed a challenge, that you not see children as an obstacle to worship, that you don't see them as something that gets in the way because they're loud or busy, but actually you see them in the way that God and Jesus sees them as his creation who are joining his family in praising him. And I can guarantee you that God loves that. He delights in it. So we do too. So don't worry if your kids are busy or loud. That's fine. Mine are too. Um, And so you don't have to worry about that. And just press in this morning to that reality that we are here worshiping God. That's the purpose. We're not here to kind of like be intellectually stimulated or um, because we want to sing our favorite worship song. All of that might happen too but primarily we are here to worship God and heed the lights when the children worship him with us. And they're learning too, right? They're learning what it looks like to worship God as God's family in here together. So we love doing that. That's why we do it. Just wanted to um, give you guys that. Now, we are finishing our series in Esther. Hooray. I'm cheering on the inside because I don't have to pronounce anymore. Very hard to pronounce Hebrew names of Persian people. Um, But I do have some more work to do this morning, so bear with me. Um, 
But here's what we're going to see and think about today for us. So Esther actually has a very powerful message for us as Christians this morning. And I was trying to think of how to kind of like consolidate what that message is this morning. And I think you can kind of get there with just asking the question that we've already talked about a little bit. It's like, why are you here? Why are you here? Why do you come to church on Sunday morning? Like, because I'm supposed to? Because it's what I do? It's because of what my family did? It's because God will be mad at me if I don't? Because my parents drug me to church? Like, why are you here? And that question is important for us because we are going to see something that gets kind of like formed into and pressed into the people of God in terms of like remembering the work that God has done on behalf of his people. And I think as we see what, um, what Esther and Mordecai do in response to everything that God has done for them, we're going to learn about what it is that we are doing here and then hopefully be able to actually um, fulfill that in a more profound and a fuller way than even Esther and Mordecai were able to do. So we are finishing Esther. We're going to be going through two chapters. The 10th chapter is really just three verses, though, so um, it's not super long. Um, but I'm going to break it up into little chunks. And so I'm going to read just kind of a chunk at a time and discuss and explain some things and then move on to the next chunk. So let me pray before we do that, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you work in unseen, unnoticed ways. You work in the ordinary messiness of life. You work through evil people, Lord. And so as we are confronted with your power and your love, I ask that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us to receive and rest in the work that you have done for us, that we would not live our lives as if you haven't done that. So Lord, help us to do that here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, that's what we're doing. We're going to this morning, try to learn what it looks like to receive and rest in Jesus's victory, to receive and rest in Jesus's victory. And so we are going to be doing a little bit of work because Jesus wasn't born yet. He was 500, this was 500 years roughly before he was born. But we do see Jesus completely fulfilling this. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of the little kind of outline that the book of Esther draws for us. And so here's what that outline looks like so far. I'm going to bring you really quickly up to date on like what is going on in Esther, just as a reminder for us. So remember, this is happening in Persia. Persia has invaded kind of the entire world at this point, including Israel and Judah. And so they, the Jews are under occupation and not only are they under occupation in that Jerusalem is part of the Persian Empire at this point, but they have also been scattered. They have been sent far away from Jerusalem. And so Esther is taking place in Susa, which is kind of like the power center of the Persian Empire. It's the capital of the Persian Empire, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And it's pretty bleak. 
Because what you see is you see a like kind of disengaged, drunk, proud, power-hungry king who just like isn't really concerned about his citizens. And you also see a group of people who are living in Persia who despise God's people. They want to kill them. And so Haman is kind of the figure that rises to power, and he's kind of like at the right hand of the king, and he gets the king to allow him to write a law that says it is legal and it's okay to kill all of the Jews on a date that's in the future. And so Esther, who becomes the queen, so Esther is Jewish, but nobody knows that she's Jewish, and she becomes the queen of Persia. And so she is placed in this position, and Mordecai is kind of trying to help her out and advise her on what to do. And so when they figure out that Haman has done all of this, Mordecai says, Esther, it's time for you now to reveal that you are a Jew, that you are part of the Jewish people, and to beg the king to not allow the killing of all of us. And so she does. And long story short, the king kind of turns his anger onto Haman, and Haman ends up dying by the very thing that he had built to kill Mordecai. And then you see Mordecai put into Haman's place. And so you see this kind of like complete reversal. It's like a 180 that happens. And all of a sudden, things are looking up for the Jews. But there's something that is troubling Esther. And this is where we finished last week. Even though Haman's dead, the law that he put in place to allow the killing of the Jews was still there. And so Esther and Mordecai are terrified that this is actually going to happen because it's not so simple to just change a law that's given by a Persian king. And so that's where we kind of landed um, with Esther begging the king to let them create another law that says the Jews can actually defend themselves. So if anyone tries to attack them, the Jews can actually defend themselves and fight their enemies and kill their enemies in the same way that their enemies were trying to kill them. And so um, we're going to pick it up now in chapter 9. And we're just going to go through verse 16 to start with. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors of the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed about 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adelia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vesatha, 
the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. All right. So this first section, you see the, pers- the preservation of the Jews accomplished. So remember last week we ended with this edict. So it was declared, it was announced that the Jews would be able to defend themselves. But now we actually see their preservation accomplished. We see them victorious over the people who hated them. And you see this in a few different ways. Um, The first is that this edict becomes an act of history. So as great as it was and as wonderful as it was for the king to give his signet ring to Mordecai and allow Mordecai to write the edict, if it doesn't become an act of history, it doesn't matter. It's just a piece of paper. And so the actual day that this happened, is the day that gets remembered by the Jews. It's the day that gets turned into the Jewish holiday, Purim. It's not the day the edict was declared, it's the day where it actually happened. The act of history is essential in actually delivering and preserving the Jews from their destruction. And you also see that destruction of evil is liberation. And so this edict shows you kind of this, um, this theme throughout Scripture, but also just a truth, a universal truth, a law of nature, is that when evil forces are destroyed, there's a liberation that occurs. There's a freedom that kind of bursts forth. Because evil forces aren't just content to exist. They oppress. They take over. They hurt. They harm. They work towards the destruction of God's creation. And so you see this liberation happening after their enemies are destroyed, after all of these people are killed who want to do the Jews harm. And it's important to notice that too. Like the first edict, it didn't command people to go and to hunt the Jews. It allowed it. It just allowed it. It said, you can go and do this if you want to. And so it wasn't against the law to just not kill. And yet, so many people wanted to destroy the Jews. There was a hatred of them because they were distinct. They were God's people. 
And so that reminds us again, as we'll get to in a second, that there's another principle that's at work here. It's not just them wanting to kill another ethnicity, even though it is that. It's actually the forces of evil, the seed of the serpent, all the way back in Genesis 3, trying to destroy the seed of promise that is working through the line of Abraham, through the Jewish people, to bring about Jesus. And so you see that ultimately, liberation is found in the birth of that son of promise. And it's one person, it's Jesus. So that's a way that he's fulfilling this. He is fulfilling their liberation through his victory and the destruction of the serpent. And so you see that foreshadowed here. Um, And you see that foreshadowed because most of the people that are strongly anti-Jewish have been influenced by Haman, who is an Agagite. And remember, Agag was the king who wanted to destroy the Jews. And actually, he was in a long line of descendants who wanted to destroy the Jews as well. And so there's like a whole family history here that's taking place. And so when you see Haman destroyed and then his sons destroyed, you're seeing kind of the redemptive work of God preserving his people go through history. The other thing that you see in this preservation accomplished is that it's decisive. It is decisive. Every single person who stood against the Jews was destroyed. And that's what the text says just very clearly is that they couldn't stand against the Jews because all of a sudden, because of that reversed edict, the government and the people in those cities throughout all of the land of Persia join the Jews in rising up and in trying to destroy the people who were trying to destroy the Jews. And so this is, again, one of those situations, and it's like, why did that happen? Like, why did these people come to the aid of the Jews in all these areas? And so this is, again, one of those times where in Esther, what is unstated becomes assumed. So what's unstated here is that God has anything to do with this. His name isn't mentioned. And yet there are things that happen that couldn't happen without his invisible power making it happen. And so God is causing these people to come to his people's aid. And it's decisive. It's full and it's final. Esther even kind of pushes into this. And this is one of those one of those places where you look at Esther and how she's different from Saul. Because remember, Saul was commanded to kill Amalek, the king who he was against, the descendant of Agag, who was trying to kill the Jews. And Saul was commanded to kill Amalek by God. And did he? No. He spared his life. He disobeyed. So he kind of went into God's Victory only halfway. And then what else did he do? He also took the spoil. God commanded him not to take the spoil of the Amalekites, and yet he took it. And so Esther going back to the king after that first day and begging him for another day, it shows you her commitment to doing the job completely. 
She's like, I don't want the future to be in question because there's a few hundred people that were trying to kill us that were missed. We have to get them all and end the threat to God's people. And so she does what Saul was unwilling to do. And what eventually led to the very situation that they're in right now was Saul's hesitancy. And so Esther finishes the job. It's a full and final preservation through victory. Okay, let's look at the next section here where we see a remembrance of this preservation. We see the people actually push in to try and remember the events that have just happened. So in verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and then rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. All he's doing there is saying, like, Susa was different because Queen Esther asked for the extra day, so they were one day behind. He's just kind of like, you know, ironing out a discrepancy that may have caused people problems. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday." that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king... He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So you see this 
principle of wanting to remember what happened, that this near-death experience for the Jews wouldn't be lost on them. It was kind of like a never-forget moment for them as a people. And Esther and Mordecai were very aware of the significance. They were very aware. This was not abstract to them. They knew that they were this close to being wiped out. And they also knew that with them being wiped out, so were all of the promises that God had made to his people. Because it was through them that the promises of God were going forth into the world. And so this wasn't just a, um, like, oh yeah, we almost got in a car wreck, and so let's remember that. It was that, but it was even more of that. It was a proof of God's faithfulness and his continued preservation of his people. And so they want them to remember that. But how they do that, how they do this remembrance is really interesting, isn't it? What's absent in this holiday? To me, it almost feels like how we celebrate Christmas now, right? It's like you give gifts to each other, you get all your family together, you eat some good food, you're sending meals out to other people, but there's no mention of God. He's absent. They're not praying. They're not worshiping. It's all horizontal. It's interesting that they would do that. What, what else is interesting? What struck me as I was reading this is the explanation that gets written down and recorded in this kind of like letter that gets sent out. Who is it that gets credit for their preservation? Look in verse 25. When the order came before the king... He gave orders in writing that the, his evil plan, the plan of Haman, that he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. Is that really how it happened? Did I read a different story? Did you guys read a different story? Did Ahasuerus all of a sudden read what Haman was going to do and say, oh no, Haman, that's terrible. You can't do that. In fact, that's going to happen to you. That's not what happened, is it? So in this edict, you see kind of this really ambiguous kind of gloss of what happened, the summary that almost makes you reconsider the whole thing. It's like, is there a different king somewhere who did all these things? Ahasuerus was drinking and was like drunk and mad, and he was just more mad that he was looking like a fool than recognizing Haman's very idea was evil. And so you see kind of like the memory is almost leading you to, to ask questions. His name also isn't in there either. It's ambiguous. It's just the king. And so you could see, think about this, a couple generations removed from the actual event, and you're celebrating Purim with your family, and your kids see this, and they say like, oh, the king saved us. Who was the king? How do you want to answer that as a parent? <laughs> Um, his name was Ahasuerus. What was he like? He was drunk and angry. He wasn't a very good king. Well, then how did he do this? It doesn't seem like he was very willing to save us. Why did he do it? And then it leads into oh, Mordecai and Esther. They were in the king's court. How are they in the court? Hmm. You see, all of these connections points 
get kind of brought to the surface by the ambiguity of this order to remember these days, the days of Purim. Even in the holiday's name itself, right? They named the holiday after the lots. The lots that Haman was casting to determine the day that they would be destroyed. What, what did those lots actually establish, though? The lots established not the day that the Jews would be destroyed. They established the day that the Jews' enemies would be destroyed. And so in even naming the holiday Purim after these lots, they're showing, okay, yes, there are all of these earthly forces, these evil forces that are at work against God's people and at work and at odds with God's purposes in this world. And God uses them to bring about his redemptive purposes. He is sovereign. He overrules them. And so you see this king who was able and powerful, but he wasn't really willing to step in and see the Jews and save the Jews. And you see Mordecai and Esther who are willing. They long to do it, but they aren't powerful enough to do it. And so in this remembrance, you see God kind of orchestrating the events of history to bring about their deliverance by kind of causing these things to happen in a way that human power could never devise. So you see that um, Mordecai and Esther have this desire that the Jews would never forget God's actions on their behalf. They would never forget what God had done to preserve them to save them. And this is a crucial element of what we do every Sunday, guys. It's we gather to remember that at one point in time, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But we are now alive in Christ. That we have been preserved from the consequences of our own sin and delivered into the kingdom of light. And we come to remember that and to proclaim it, to sing it, to again experience that victory. And so that's part of why we're here on Sunday, is to do that, so that we would never forget what Christ has done for us. The day in history that is significant for us is not what happened on Tuesday. It's not what happened seven years ago. It's not even what happened when you first came to faith. As wonderful as that day is, the day in history that we remember is the day that Jesus died for you, for us. And then on Sunday, rose for you and for us. That is the day in history that God used for our reversal, to take our fasting and turn it into feasting, to transform our lives. So what does it look like now, after all these things have happened? This book is really anticlimactic. It's like all of these wonderful things happen, and then chapter 10 is like three verses. And it's like, oh, this, must, this was great. Like this Everything is going in the right trajectory for the Jews, so it seems. But pick up with me in chapter 10. 
King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of, him, of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So life after the preservation it begins with the king. Who is the king? It's King Ahasuerus. It's a Persian king still. They're still in exile. Yes, they escaped death. They escaped extermination. But they're still in exile. And you can see kind of this, the, um, the effect of having such a short chapter here at the end is kind of almost an experience of exile, I think, that we can all identify with, where it's like part of living in exile, part of living outside of God's kingdom, part of living here on this earth where it's subject to the powers of evil and the darkness and the authorities that seek to harm God's people, that seek to destroy God's creation. Part of the effect of that is the presence of God can feel like it's fading to black. That's kind of what is happening here. In 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel, they list the deeds of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And then kind of like as a summary statement, they say, the, aren't the deeds of this king also written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah or the kings of Israel? And like the author does that same thing here, but it's the kings of Medea and Persia. And so it's a powerful reminder that even though for the Jews this truly was a miracle and it was something worth celebrating, it was incomplete. It wasn't final. And you see that they're so close. It seems so close. Instead of Vashti, you have Esther. You have a Jewish queen. Instead of Haman, you have Mordecai. You have a right-hand man who's also a Jew. But you don't have a Jewish king. You don't have that descendant of David who's going to be a better David to unite God's people in God's kingdom and lead them into eternal rest, into the fulfillment of all the promises that had been given to the Jewish people. That king arrived about 500 years later and so if you fast forward from Esther now into history and see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and you're a Jew, it's like this is the missing piece. This is the king. It's the last thing that's left for us to again have our kingdom here. But then he's crucified. He dies on a Roman cross. It's like, what? what just happened? Haman and his descendants are the ones who are supposed to be on that cross, not the king. And you see this principle that's established in Esther 
of God working these redemptive reversals come to fulfillment as Jesus resurrects. He transforms that cross into an eternal throne. He transforms death into life. He transforms fasting into feasting. Except for this time, he has defeated death. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And the plunder and the spoil, he gives to his people eternally in his kingdom. We live right now in anticipation of that. Jesus' life, those events in history, show us our certain future. They show us that we, too, will pass through death and into eternal life. But it's not there yet. It's like the Jews living after Haman was dead, but before all of their enemies were overthrown. And so for us, we still yearn for that. We still look forward to it. Even as we remember what Jesus has done, we look forward to the full experience of that. And we also know that that doesn't happen until Jesus returns. We don't bring that about. We don't create our own salvation. We don't bring God's kingdom. It comes with the return of Jesus. And so on Sundays, yes, we are remembering we are here remembering the work that God has done through his son and how we have received that, how God and his spirit has brought that to you individually to receive and to trust, to rest in. But we also are looking forward. We're anticipating. We're actually doing something that is a glimpse into the future of what we will do eternally. Be in God's presence. Be with his people. Because our salvation was a means to that end. That we wouldn't just be preserved, but that we would be brought into the king's table in his kingdom and feast with him forever. And this promise is from the word of God. And the grass may wither and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you that you have given us this book. We thank you that you have shown us that we're not crazy, (laughs) that life in exile is hard, that there's so many times where you feel distant, where you feel absent, where you feel asleep, where you get frustrated because it doesn't seem like you see or care and yet, Lord, as we, as we zoom out, as we think about all of the work of your hands, we see that you are not only able, but willing to redeem your creation, to redeem us. You're not only willing, but you're able to redeem us. You are willing and able, Lord, and you have done it in the person and work of Christ. Lord, help us this morning to remember that, to rejoice in it, to lay down everything else and to gaze on the victory that you have won for us, to rest in that, to receive it with the hands of faith. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.